This morning, Jill responded to a question around the fourth foundation of mindfulness and explored how that foundation can really be seen as seeing experience. The, 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 the foundation is mindfulness of dhammas. And as she pointed out, the word dhammas has multiple layers of meaning can mean simply experience or phenomenon, and it can mean the Buddhist teaching, the Dharma, the teaching of the Dhamma. It can also mean truth. And so um, in this exploration of the fourth foundation, we're exploring the phenomenon of our experience, what arises through this perspective of the lens of the Dharma, to begin to understand the truth of our experience. And so this is, this is the exploration of this fourth foundation. And as she said this morning that, you know, we don't like have to wait to do the fourth foundation until we've mastered the first three. They're all at play in our practice, pretty much right from the beginning. We sit down and meditate and, and try to stay with the breath. And the mind goes off into wanting or thinking. And, and right there in observing wanting, observing aversion, we are exploring this fourth foundation, the hindrances, noticing how they come to be, noticing the conditions that put them together, noticing what makes them fall apart. And this is, this is an aspect of the fourth foundation. And so we can open to and begin to explore our experience from these perspectives, these Dharma perspectives. And tonight I'd like to explore one of those that's offered in the fourth foundation, that of the five aggregates. The word aggregate itself in English at least, is not a very friendly word. It doesn't have a very experiential quality. It sounds kind of technical. And the word in Pali, Kanda in Pali, Skanda in Sanskrit, has a much more ordinary sound, apparently. My understanding is that word basically means something like heap or bundle or group, collection, something like that. And yet this word aggregate is actually, as I reflect on it, a pretty good translation for this word because these uh, these aggregates are both described these khandas are described both as kind of the what of our experience, what's happening in our experience, but they're also described as the processes that happen in our experience. So they're both nouns and verbs in a way. And this verb, this word aggregate can function that way. It it basically is a word that means, as as a noun, it means stuff made of other stuff, 
which is a pretty good translation in some ways for what we're talking about with these aggregates, these aggregates of the body, form, feeling, perception, mental formation and consciousness, these five aspects, areas of experience that the Buddha kind of divvied up our human experience into, pointing out that all of experience falls into one of these heaps or collections or bundles. And yet they're, they're also understood to be processes, the process of body, the process of perception, the process of feeling, the process of knowing. And so this word aggregate actually does a pretty good job because the word can also be used as aggregate, which is the verb form in the English. We aggregate, we pull things together. These five aggregates, I just named them, but I'll just briefly describe form, our bodily experience, the physical aspect of experience. And then the other four aggregates are mental, mental processes, mental experience, feeling, is this recognition of experience as pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, or as the Buddha says, the process responsible for that. Perception, this process of recognizing what's happening in experience. So this recognition aspect that's related to memory, related to learning and understanding what objects and what experience is. This is perception. Mental formations, a whole range of um, emotions, thoughts, mind states that have a volitional component to them. So the volitional aspect of our experience and then consciousness, the simple knowing aspect of our experience. We can think of them as kind of the building blocks of our experience. All of our experience, any experience we have, we can begin to recognize as being these processes or these experiences unfolding or intertwined. So having a cup of tea, for instance, there's the bodily experience of the, uh, the warmth, the uh, moisture on the tongue, the taste also part of the body, the taste, the perhaps sweetness if you put sweetener in there, or bitterness, or whatever the flavors are, that's also part of form. And then the feeling, the feeling tone. Some aspects of it might be pleasant if it's warm, soothing in that way, or unpleasant if it's too hot, your tongue might get burned. So the feeling tone is in there. The taste itself might have pleasant and unpleasant aspects of it. 
than the perception, the recognition, chamomile tea or Earl Grey tea, whatever, whatever it is. The, there's the, the kind of acknowledgement or recognition of what this is. And then mental formations. We have mental formations about everything. So we'll either like this tea or we won't like it or it'll remember us about some other cup of tea we had when we were sitting in some cafe in, in India one time and comparing and contrasting that tea to this. Our minds will do this forming, mental formation. Or perhaps it's simply present and mindful for this experience. Mindfulness itself being a mental formation. And then there's the knowing. We are aware. There's this basic quality that we know this experience. So these processes make up our experience. Any aspect of our experience can be found in these five aggregates, in, in these categories. And this is just the way the Buddha divvied up experience. It's perhaps a different divvying, and he divvied it up different ways. He also, he also divvied it up in terms of this six sense bases, a different kind of dividing of the human pie of experience. And so there's not just one way but he pointed to this particular way for certain reasons, and I'll get to that in just a minute. But I wanted to read to you this section of the Satipatthana Sutta where it gives the instructions about this foundation. It's actually pretty simple. I'm going to read this translation using some different words for dhammas so that it'll give you different flavors Sometimes I'll use the word dhammas. Sometimes I'll use phenomena. Sometimes I'll use experience. So these are the instructions. A practitioner abides contemplating experience as experience in terms of the five aggregates affected by clinging. And how does one abide contemplating experience as experience in terms of the five aggregates affected by clinging? Here one understands, such is material form. Such is its arising. Such is its disappearance. Such is feeling. Such is its arising. Such is its disappearance such as perception, such as its arising, such as its disappearance. Such are mental formations, such are their arising, such their disappearance. Such is consciousness, such is its arising, such is its disappearance. A a practitioner abides contemplating phenomena as phenomena affected by the five aggregates of clinging. Phenomena as phenomena in terms of the five aggregates affected by clinging. A practitioner abides contemplating dhammas 
as dhammas in terms of the five aggregates affected by clinging. So this translation, I I like this translation, contemplating our experience in terms of the five aggregates. Beginning to understand our experience from this perspective. And initially this can take some kind of like navigation or uh, understanding, looking at experience and recognizing, oh, this experience, that's body. This experience, that's feeling. Sayadaw Utejaniya points to the study of the five aggregates initially when we first begin to explore the five aggregates is kind of like uh, an analogy of kind of learning to read. And as we learn to read at the beginning, we, we learn to recognize the shapes of letters. We have to recognize the shapes of letters and associate those with sounds. And at first we, we, we need to learn the letters. This, this shape is a, a C, this shape is A, this shape is T. And then we learn the sounds associated with them. And we learn that becomes cat. But once we've learned this, and once we've begun to understand how to read, we don't have to do that breakdown. We just see the word and it's cat. We understand it fully just from the contact with it. And he says it's kind of like that with the study of the five aggregates. Initially we may need to actually spend some time with each of these aggregates, getting familiar with them, like we get familiar with the alphabet. And then after some time, we don't have to do that work anymore. And so this section of the Satipatthana Sutta, the instructions are actually pretty simple. Notice each aspect of experience. What, what kind of, ex- notice, such as feeling. Notice it's arising and disappearance. And so that's the main emphasis I'd like to look at tonight is just exploring how to begin to recognize these in our experience. But why? Why recognize these in particular in our experience? The emphasis partly in this exploration is on clinging, to begin to recognize how we tend to cling, kind of congeal around these aspects or areas of experience. There's a a way in which the Buddha really pointed to these five aggregates of clinging as being, in many places where the Buddha describes the process of selfing, another aspect of the question Jill addressed this morning, looking at the sense of self and how to begin to explore the sense of self. Well, this is the main tool that the Buddha used for exploring the sense of self, exploring how the sense of self is created in many places where the Buddha talked about this selfing process. 
he used these five aggregates as a way to help us see through it as just another process in our mind. Again, as, as, as Jill said this morning, it's not that we're trying to stop this process of selfing, but we're trying to see it for what it is, which is a process of mind constructing this sense. So the, the seeing the process at work begins to uh, weaken the clinging and weaken the ways in which that process leads to suffering. And so this exploration of the five aggregates is one of the ways in which we can begin to explore this teaching of not-self. Analio, Bhikkhu Analio, has a, a kind of a simple way of describing the way in which a sense of self is associated with each of these aggregates. I like this because it's kind of a, it's a, I think we can all resonate with this, this um, way of locating a sense of self with each of these. He says body or, or form, this experience of body, the sense of self tends to locate it as where I am. The body is where I am. Kind of located in the body, perhaps. Feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, is how I am. Perception is what I'm recognizing in the world. Mental formations are why I'm doing things. That sense of volition or agency, why I am acting. And the the consciousness or the knowing aggregate is, he uses this language, whereby I am experiencing, kind of the medium through which experience is recognized or known. And so to, to begin to get familiar with these aggregates can begin to help us to see our experience in a different way. Not as I or me or mine, but as just these processes of body and mind interweaving, interconnecting, influencing each other. And no need actually to have an ongoing I controlling anything. It's doing itself, these processes are doing themselves. So while the Satipatthana Sutta doesn't point to this teaching on the, the connection um, to the, uh, the selfing process, there are many other teachings in the suttas that point to this. And if I have ch- a chance tonight, if I have some time, I'll, I may talk about one of those, but we'll see how far we get here. So body, form, We've talked about this quite a bit already, so I won't spend too much time here. 
Brian spoke about it last night in mindfulness of the body. Really, I think this this foundation or this uh, this aggregate is really looking at um, this aspect of our the physicality of our experience in its basic form. Just beginning to recognize the language of the body. How does the body communicate with the mind? It communicates through the touch sense, through these, these elemental experiences, feeling, of, of, um, of feeling of tingling, pulsing, vibration, hardness, softness, moisture, dryness, heat, coolness. So these, these, these areas of physical experience that come through our touch sense. And then through the other physical senses, we, we experience through the eye, for instance, we think, we look out into the world and we think we're seeing, we think we're seeing people and walls and windows and zabutans and zafus and chairs and lights. But all of that is actually in the perception aggregate. What, we re- what comes into the eye, what the bare experience in the eye, is form and color. That's kind of the basic experience in the eye. In the, in the taste, the basic experience, you know, we bite into pizza, we taste pizza, but we're tasting salty, sweet, bitter, savory sour. That's it. That's the the language of the tongue. Pizza, cheese, those are concepts. Those are ideas. Learned through time. Learned from exposure. So beginning to recognize what our actual bodily experience is. So this begins to help us, as I I think I said this, it seems ages ago when I gave an instruction on the the body in the morning instructions, but I talked about how as we begin to recognize the language of the body, we begin to tease apart these processes to begin to recognize that, in fact, you know, the, 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 the difference between the taste of salty and the idea of pizza, the pleasantness or unpleasantness of that, and all of the, the ideas and associations that we have about that, we begin to recognize that there, there are processes going on in the mind. And so beginning to be get, get familiar with this language of the body helps us begin to tease apart these five different processes, these five aggregates. I think some of the key ways, or one of the key ways that in addition to this sense of locating ourselves in the body, and I think that's a, a pretty common feeling. It may, be, it may be cultural to some extent, this sense of I'm in the body. Because the Buddha also talked about different ways that this could be experienced. He, could say, he, he said it might be that the body is in me. or I am part of the body, or the body is mine. That's another one that's very familiar. 
This body is mine. We, we carry it around with us like it's, it's something we own as opposed to being a process that's integral to our being. This, this way that Brian spoke about it last night was so beautiful, this, this very integral nature of, of embodiment and the experience comes through this body and somehow we feel like we own it. And so we can, we can begin to recognize the ways in which we congeal a sense of self around each of these areas. Then feeling, this second aggregate of feeling, we've also spent some time on this already. Feeling is understood to be a mental experience. It's a mental aggregate, mental experience. Now this may be fairly easy to understand in terms of um, mind states, you know, the feeling of happiness is pleasant. We'd understand that to be a mental pleasure perhaps, the feeling of anger often unpleasant. But even physical sensations are understood physical uh, feeling, feeling associated with the physical body, feeling associated with sight, with sound, with smell, with taste, with touch, is also understood to be mental. And I want to just give you a little bit of a kind of a an understanding of this. I think we all know this to some extent because we do see, we do recognize how um, a state of mind can influence what we feel. You know, somebody, somebody. Um, touches us by surprise and, and perhaps if the mind is in a certain state that would be experienced as unpleasant. If the mind's in a different state it might be experienced as neutral or even pleasant. Mindfulness, we can see this with mindfulness too, that, you know, that as the mind is in, becomes really present for experience Sometimes we're surprised at just how beautiful things are and how pleasant some experience can sometimes be. Things that you wouldn't expect to be beautiful or pleasant. At Spirit Rock one time I was sitting one of the long retreats and doing walking meditation in the upper walking room at Spirit Rock. And I turned to leave, the bell had rung I guess, and I turned to leave the hall and uh, just my gaze glanced out the window, not out the window, but out the door. And my perception, this was a part of it, was the process of perception at work. Um, my perception was that there was a, a picture hanging on the wall just on, on the outside of the door. And that picture to me was very beautiful. It was really simple, but it was incredibly beautiful. It was, it was just these like three squares and they were kind of offset in this way that just created just a feeling of a lot of pleasure. Pleasure and beauty. Now I'm fairly nearsighted. So I, you know, was curious to look more closely at this beautiful painting and so I walked closer to it. 
and discovered it was a fire extinguisher. (laughs) Not something I would have normally thought of as pleasant or beautiful. (laughs) So this, again, this points to how feeling tone is constructed by the mind. The feeling tone, the process of feeling, and so the feeling tone itself is what we would call the what of our experience. That things are pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And, um, and yet this process of feeling, the, the verb side of this, is that our feeling is conditioned. The conditions of our mind Views, opinions, ideas, attitudes, state of mind, whether we're in a state of of concentration and equanimity, of mindfulness or a state of aversion, all of this will influence and affect how this process of feeling unfolds. So the mental climate of our mind affects feeling. We can also start to see, and this is a hugely important area in our practice, to see just how um, our reactivity, when we are not mindful, when we're not aware, when we're not clearly knowing, oh, this is a pleasant experience, this is an unpleasant experience, how, how the mind will tend to, based on its habits, spring into wanting to create the conditions for us to have the pleasant, to get rid of the unpleasant. That this, the, the, the seeing of the feeling tone helps to create the conditions for us to recognize that tendency to leap off of feeling tone into reactivity. Play with this in your sittings at times. It is really helpful. Just, just begin to track a little bit. Maybe, and again, not all the time. I don't, want, I, I don't want this to be a big project. But from time to time, especially if you find your mind in a state of reactivity, it can be really useful to recognize or reflect on what's actually the mind, what is actually the mind reacting to here. What is unpleasant in my experience that the mind is moving into this? What's pleasant in my experience that the mind wants to hold on to? Sometimes we can be surprised. What we think of as what we're reacting to and moving towards or moving away from, it may not be what we think. And so it can be a very interesting exploration. I think a sense of self, in addition to this sense of this uh, feeling being how I am, there's this strong sense of self motivated around feeling to maximize pleasant and minimize unpleasant. Kind of an underground sense of self that feels like it cannot be okay unless it's in control of maximizing pleasant and minimizing unpleasant. At a very deep level.
And then the process of perception. Perception being that aspect of experience where we recognize what's out there. This is a really useful function of our minds. Thank goodness for perception. If I had to come in here every time and figure out that this was people and chairs and floor and stairs and wall and it would be exhausting. And so this is a useful kind of shortcut in our minds to quickly recognize what's happening and, and, and recognize how to navigate things. And so the way this works is basically our minds, this is my, my kind of way of understanding it, Um, our minds contact some experience, a sound for instance, and then the, the mind kind of goes into its memory banks and looks for the thing that's most, like, closest match. What's the closest match I can find to that sound? And then perceives or recognizes it as that. And so... Many times, perhaps, during the day, you have heard the sound of a car going down Pleasant Street. And that sound is one thing. And then the mind will label it, or recognize it, as car, perhaps. Or truck, maybe. So that is perception at work. And, and I think in the, the realm of hearing is one of the easiest places to begin to recognize this process because it's fairly easy to, to, to see or recognize the dis- distinction between the vibration in the eardrum, that, that thing coming into the ear, and the mind in some fashion identifying it. That identification of the experience might come as if we're talking to ourselves, labeling it as, oh, car or truck. Or it might come as uh, an image or even as a feeling. It can come as a feeling in the body. Might maybe, for instance, as if you're riding in a truck, something like that. That could be a way that perception would work. So this, um, this process of perception does a pretty good job for us, but it is um, not perfect by any means. It, it easily makes mistakes. The classic kind of example about this is, um, well, I'll give an example from my own experience. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's an example from, that uses sound. Um, and I was, I was in Burma, I was practicing in the monastery, some of you heard this example before, and um, I was um, meditating in my room primarily, and my dorm was in a place near the wall to the monastery, and I envisioned the village, the, the sounds of the village came over the wall fairly easily, the loudspeakers, the sounds of the farms and all things that were going on. So there's a lot of noise 
and um, at a certain point each day I began noticing this squealing sound and uh, that the sound, my, my mind perceived it as pig. That squealing was, that, that squeal, I mean, I'd heard pigs squeal and that's the closest thing my mind came up with, okay, as a pig squealing. And so my mind didn't quite stop there. It also added a little bit more because it sounded to me like this was a distressed squealing. And so I kind of, this image appeared in my mind of what was on the other side of that wall was the butcher shop of the village and this was the pigs being slaughtered for the next day. And so that was what my mind created. And I knew that was a creation. I knew, I knew that I did not know if that's what was going on. But still, that's what was coming up. And so I just noticed it and I felt compassion <laughs> for the pigs. <laughs> and then one day I was um, doing some walking meditation at that time instead of uh, sitting meditation. And there were... Um, bats flying in the air, coming really close to me, and, and they were squealing. This was what I had been hearing. And so, of course, the compassion vanished. You know, there's no need for that compassion. There were no pigs being slaughtered. I knew, I knew that I did not know that there were pigs being slaughtered. I knew that was a construction of the mind. I knew that was a mental formation. But what I was not prepared for was that it was not a pig, <laughs> that it was a bat. That was a kind of a real eye-opener. You know, just how much was constructed out of that idea that it was a pig. And so we can see that... that um, you know, we, we create the idea, so I heard the sound, I believed it was a pig, and that itself was a place where the mind slips into delusion. Now, the misperception of it as pig is not necessarily delusion, that's just the mind making, kind of like, that was the closest match it had. I don't think I'd ever known that bats squealed before. Um, but so that was the closest match it had, but believing that what I was hearing was a pig, that is delusion. Believing that my mind was accurately experiencing and knowing reality through its perceptions, that's a form of delusion. And so this is one of the main places that delusion enters in, in our mind, is taking our perceptions to be reality, to be what's out there, we take, we, we take our experience as if our eyes are cameras seeing actually everything, every little bit of information that's out there. But that's not the way our minds work. We see some things, we don't see other things. Our minds perceive things and not other things. And so this is a really important area of recognition. So when we... And, and to come back to the feeling tone, because there's a real uh, blend here, there's a, an interweaving here between perception and feeling tone. 
So that example around the, the believing it was a pig being slaughtered, the feeling of the, the ache in the heart around a, a, a being being killed, you know, that all was constructed by the mind. When we are responding to something and take it to be pleasant or unpleasant, it can be really interesting to check in. Is it actually a sound or a sight or a smell that we're taking to be pleasant or unpleasant? Or a touch that we're taking to be pleasant or unpleasant? Or is it an idea that is happening in association with that sound or sight? Very often, our pleasant, unpleasant experience is connected more to the perception and associated ideas, mental formations around that perception than, they, than it is to the actual sense contact. So this for me has been a really fascinating exploration, useful and eye-opening to see what is actually being reacted to. The vast majority of the time is something my mind makes up. It, it, it can be a pretty close match to reality but it is not what's actually out there that the mind is reacting to. It is something that the mind has constructed. This is a really useful understanding. And so a sense of self around this, I am recognizing what I am recognizing. And I think the sense of self here is, and I'm doing it accurately. I'm seeing things correctly. So this is a piece of that selfing there. And mental formations. So mental formations is a huge, huge aggregate. It's all of our mental activities that have a kind of a volitional or intentional effect. Um, So this includes all of our emotions. It includes our mind states of like calm, concentration, mindfulness, boredom, confusion, the emotions of anger, patience, impatience, frustration, irritation. It includes bliss, joy, calm, pride, conceit mental formations, thoughts are in this realm of mental formations. This is a lot of what happens in our minds. Beliefs, agendas, views, also mental formations. It's a lot of what we observe in our minds. So that's kind of the what of our experience. But in this realm of mental formation, it's really helpful to recognize the process nature of mental formations, even more so than some of the others in a way. This, um, this aspect of mental formations not only 
Are they formed? They are formed, and we, we see that. We recognize, you know, anger, for instance, comes into being independence on conditions. So it's formed. It's shaped by conditions, by history, by our state of mind in the moment, by something that's being met in our senses. It's shaped in that way. So it's, it comes together based on conditions. But the mental formations also have this nature, not only are they formed, they form, they construct. This is the process of mental formations. There's a description of mental formations in the suttas that points to this And I'm going to read this just as it is here, but then I'll talk about it a little bit. Why are they called volitional formations? They construct the conditions. Therefore, they're called volitional formations. Now this, um, there's a note here that this doesn't translate into English (laughs) very well because um, in the Pali, the word for volitional formation, the word for construct, and the word for conditioned or constructed are all based on the same word. And so you might say something like, why are they called volitional formations? Because they form things that are formed. That would be kind of what it sounds like in the Pali. But they construct the conditioned Therefore, they're called volitional formations. And what is the condition that they construct? They construct conditioned form as form. They construct conditioned feeling as feeling. They construct conditioned perception as perception. They construct conditioned formations as formations. They construct conditioned consciousness as consciousness. This is the engine This is how the aggregates tumble on. This process of mental formation is constructing them, continuously constructing feeling, perception, knowing, form, and mental formations. So for example, with anger as a formation, the volitional formation of anger affects our body. It can be experienced as pressure and heat internally. It can affect the, 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 the face. It can affect the, the, our face. We may have a, a scowl on our face or distorted muscles in our face when we're angry. This is how anger shapes or constructs the body in some ways. It tends to construct feeling as unpleasant when we're angry. Things tend to be unpleasant. It tends to potentially construct our perceptions in terms of that anger. So we tend to perceive things through that lens of anger, perceiving things as to why we are justified perhaps in feeling that anger. Anger tends to construct more anger. And our consciousness is affected and directed by this filter. 
I talked about this in the delusion talk, how when we have a filter, our consciousness will land on certain things and not other things. So it shapes what we know. Again, it's not that we are taking all experience in. Our, what we know is shaped by our mind state. And so this points to the power of our minds to construct our experience. This is a really important exploration to looking at how is experience affected by our minds? What is the state of this mind having this experience? So something like anger potentially has, you know, more obvious ways in which it affects our, our uh, aggregates. Other mental formations, a little less um, obvious perhaps, still have incredible power to shape our minds. Views, beliefs, very powerful mental formations, often below the level of our conscious awareness. In this country, in this culture, we tend to have this belief that America is the land of opportunity. Anyone who works hard enough can achieve their dream. And this belief kind of pervading our culture creates kind of a a blindness on the part of the dominant culture to not see how that, how the power structures, the institutions, the organizations support people with white skin and not so much people with darker skin tone. This not seeing essentially the blindness of, of white privilege. Views shape our minds in this way. Not seeing that the, the whole structure of the way institutions are put together creates an inherent imbalance. So much suffering comes from these kinds of views and beliefs when they are not seen as views and beliefs. Basically just taken to be, this is true. America is a land of opportunity. If you're not achieving your dream, you're not working hard enough. That can be the belief there. So a lot of suffering comes in this terrain of mental formations. And essentially what we're doing in our practice is exploring shaping wholesome mental formations, bringing in mindfulness and concentration and peace and patience and equanimity. And this has a transformative effect on our minds.
and begins to reveal (laughs) the way this all works. And then the, the aggregate of consciousness of knowing. This is the bare experience of knowing. Every single moment of experience, whether we're mindful or not, there is a knowing. And, and I, I, think, I think I mentioned this at one point, you know, that, you know, we can walk down the street, be completely lost in, in thought, and yet we're still not like walking into trees and falling off the edge of the road. Something is knowing where we are, what we're doing. And so whether we're mindful or not, this knowing is functioning. This just simple, very simple aspect of every contact with the sense base. There's, there's the eye, and there's form and sight, And then there's the knowing of that. There's the ear and sound and the contact and there's the knowing, the consciousness. So each sense base has this this consciousness aspect to it. Eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, smell consciousness. Mind consciousness. So every experience, whatever experience there is, a sound, there's the sound and the knowing of it. There's the sight and the knowing of it. There's a mind state and the knowing of it. And it's possible in mindfulness, for mindfulness to be able to recognize this knowing side of the experience. We tend to gravitate, especially before we start looking at our minds, we tend to gravitate towards, towards the object, what is known. That seems to be the way our minds are kind of basically oriented. And yet we can know the knowing itself. We can be aware of the knowing itself. It's possible to distinguish between sight, the seeing, the object of sight and the knowing of it, the sound and the knowing of it. This, um, one of the places this became most uh, obvious to me, one of the early places I could really begin to see this distinction and, and, and recognize that the mind was actually landing on the knowing side of the equation. Was one time I was um, sitting and having a a real um, unpleasant experience, an unpleasant physical sensation, a lot of strong bodily energy. And so there was some aversion there. So there was the, um, the aversion to the physical sensation. And I was, I was recognizing the aversion and noticing the unpleasantness noticing the unpleasantness of the unpleasant sensation and noticing the unpleasantness of the aversion, both of them. And then at some point the mind kind of got interested in and and actually shifted its note 
I don't know if I did this intentionally or not, but, but the mind began recognizing, oh, aversion is known. Aversion is known. And with that, the mind kind of settled back and it was more interested in the knowing of the aversion. And the feeling tone, that the, the, the thing that was so clear to me in that moment, was that the feeling tone was neutral. The entire experience felt completely different because it was no longer unpleasant. The mind was interested in knowing. Aversion's known, wow, knowing is happening. And when it was paying attention to the knowing, the feeling tone of the knowing was neutral. And so sometimes we can be curious about the knowing. Uh, you can, I invite you at times to explore experience in this way. Seeing is known. Hearing is known. Frustration is known. Just see what happens in your experience with that. And this last little piece I'm just gonna drop in as a forward pointer. Not so much something I'm going to go into right now, but probably in a week or so, the next time I get to give a talk, I'll, I'll explore this in a little bit more. So this is an exploration of how, or it's more actually a reflection in a way of how we can begin to understand these processes as not self. And it uses something that we can actually really recognize in our experience. So I'll read this to you. This is the Buddha speaking. Form is not self. If form were self, this form would not lead to affliction. And it would be possible to have it a form May my form be thus. May my form not be thus. But because form is not self, form leads to affliction, and it is not possible to have it a form. May my form be thus. May my form not be thus. Wouldn't that be nice? May my, my, my face be thus. May my... Age spots be thus. May my arthritis be thus. Wouldn't that be nice? And the Buddha points to this as evidence for not-self. This lack of control that we cannot say. We do not have agency over, we do not have complete agency over our, our five aggregates. I can have some agency. I think this is where we get confused. So I can, I can say, I'm going to move my hands like this. And I can do that. But that's a very limited aspect of control. And so the Buddha is pointing to this 
that we do not have control as being a pointer to or evidence for not-self. And so with mental formations, get specific here. Wouldn't it be nice? The Buddha says, concentration is not-self. I'm putting concentration in where mental formations is what's used, but this will give you the flavor. Concentration is not self. Concentration were self, it would be possible to have it of concentration. May my concentration be thus. May my concentration be thus. Wouldn't that be nice? But no. With respect to all the aggregates, the Buddha points to that they are not inherently controllable and therefore that is evidence for not-self. And so this is a piece of the exploration, recognizing it's not a mistake when we can't control our minds. It's not a mistake. It's the nature of the mind. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.